Greetings from Charlottesville, Virginia, and welcome to Global Commerce Exchange. I'm Peter Millay, and I'll be your host for today's conversation at the crossroads of global affairs and the world of business. Our show is brought to you by the Center for Global Commerce at the University of Virginia. Now, let's get started. Today, I'm delighted to welcome Susan Lund, Senior Partner and Researcher at McKinsey Global Institute, based in Washington, D.C. A Stanford-trained economist, Susan and her colleagues research and write about a wide range of topics relevant to global business. Their recent report on global value chains caught my attention at a time when many are questioning whether our globally interconnected way of doing business exposes us all to unacceptable risks, notably in this time of pandemic. Susan struck me as exactly the right person to shed more light on this question, given her deep knowledge of the inner workings of the global economy, the inherent risks, and the solutions that can help businesses develop more resilient approaches, even during this time of great uncertainty. Susan, thank you very much for being here and welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's really my pleasure. So Susan, I referenced your report uh, recently released uh, entitled Risk, Resilience, and Rebalancing in Global Value Chains, in which you talk about tightly choreographed value chains spanning literally thousands of companies. Tell us more about what these are. Well, value chain is sort of an economist wonky word. Um, Companies usually call it their supply chain. But what we mean is if you think about any good that you use, so I'm sitting in front of my laptop. Well, to bring this laptop together took thousands of companies, literally, supplying different parts, uh, supplying the plastic case, the screen, the metals that go into the processors. Um, And so what it requires to bring together any good is actually this very large network of different companies contributing this piece or that piece coming together in sub-assembly and then final assembly. And then finally, um, the company, in this case, Lenovo, had to get this computer to me sitting here in the U.S. So when we say value chain, we are talking about all the different steps in production from mining the materials needed through creating all of the components and then getting that physical good to the end consumer. So what you're describing is probably more complex than your average listener would realize who might readily think that there are, you know, a half a dozen suppliers or something that contribute to a supply chain. Given that simplicity is often seen as a virtue, why has business manufacturing evolved in this incredibly complex way that you've described? Well, it's really specialization. David Ricardo centuries ago had it right. So what's happened over the last 20 years is we've had a revolutionary in communication and it's been possible to communicate more effectively with suppliers in different countries. And we had falling transportation costs and the rise of great big container ships. These two twin developments enabled companies to start thinking about instead of having a set of suppliers down the road or maybe across the country, they could go to other countries. A lot of the initial creation of these long global 
supply chains started with a search for cheaper labor. So China, of course, um, in many uh, industries has become the factory of the world. It's picked up a lot of production. Um, but even within a country, there are many, many different companies that, that contribute. And it's really been specialization that's enabled um, companies to focus on producing one particular component and then perfect the quality of that and then reduce the cost. Um, and this led to the proliferation of suppliers for any individual company. Susan, in your report, you uh, you focus on the year 2000 as a bit of an inflection point in this whole story that you're helping us to understand. Was there an event or events that occurred around about that time that led to this process of global value chains increasing? Well, on one hand, we could have gone back to 1990 or 1995. Um, there are no sharp dates in economic history, but it's really the last 20 to 25 years that we've seen developing countries really enter. But as it turns out, China entered the World Trade Organization uh, at the end of 2000 and 2001, and so formally became part of the community of nations agreeing to abide by this common set of rules for trade. Susan, you mentioned uh, David Ricardo and the ideas around economic specialization. So I think a lot of people, when they hear the term supply chain, if they if they know anything about it, they might think that it has fundamentally to do with um, accessing lower costs, whether those are labor costs or other costs in, um, in other countries. Yet I was struck in your report that you said that only 13% of overall goods traded are going from low to high wage countries, which seem to be a signal that there's something more going on here than simply accessing low cost labor. Could you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, this has been a big change over the last 20 to 25 years. And it's the rise of technology and robotics and automation. So the fact is labor has become less important to manufacturing uh, as machines now create more of the goods that we need. Um, and as uh, labor has become a smaller component in most industries, there are a few exceptions, um, then companies could produce anywhere they wanted in the world. Uh, so that is a big driver. A second driver, of course, is that wages have increased in China, in Mexico, in Eastern Europe. So countries that used to be low-wage suppliers are now middle-income countries, and wages, in fact, have risen substantially. Does that mean that supply chains are shifting to new countries of low-cost labor, or does it mean more fundamentally that the nature of manufacturing globally itself is changing? Well, this is when you need to start talking. You need to divide manufacturing industries into two groups. There is a small group for which labor is still very important, and that's textiles, apparel, toys, shoes, furniture. Those are the big five. And in so for those industries, you have seen a migration to ever lower wage places like Bangladesh, Vietnam, Ethiopia. Um, so for those industries, labor costs do matter and they will follow the labor pool to lower cost solutions. For everything else that is produced, 
labor cost is just not a major driver. So now that means companies have been thinking about other things. So after this wave of the creation of long global value chains, a trend we've seen over the last five or eight years is regionalization. So companies are finding out it's really hard to manage a supply chain that's halfway around the world, 12 or 13 hour difference in time zones, difficult to go visit in person. It also is a bottleneck in many industries if you have goods sitting in transit for 30 days to get to the end consumer. So with the rise of social media, demand has become more variable. Companies have a harder time predicting what consumers are going to want because now what we want is not just driven by advertisements in print media or television. It depends on what Kim Kardashian wore or a different movie star said. And so this creates demand spikes for companies. And to respond to consumer surges in demand, it's more convenient to have goods produced closer to where they're going to be sold. And it also frees up cash, so the CFO likes it as well. So there has already been a trend towards looking at other factors like time to market, understanding consumers, availability of skilled talent to run the machines that make our, make what we buy. So you're talking about a value chain construct then that is not only extremely complex, as you illustrated with your initial example about your computer, about your laptop, but also highly variable from industry to industry and also incredibly dynamic and and a, a uh, construct that is evolving rapidly industry by industry, all of which, of course, in your report, leads you to the subject of risk, which is really at the heart of the work, as I understand it, that you've done. Um, by the way, I appreciated your definition of risk, if I can quote there, as an unforeseen event meeting weakness that was there all along. I thought it was a very nice way of thinking about uh, business risk in this context. So you talk about four main risk categories, or at least as I understood your report, you talk about force majeure risk, macro-political risk, malicious actor risk, and idiosyncratic event risk. Um, tell us about each one of those four categories and, and, and help those come to light for us, if you would. Sure. So after we've painted this picture of this incredibly complex supplier network with thousands of companies around the world, now think about the world we live in, one of cyber attacks. We have rising global temperatures that are creating more frequent and extreme weather events. We have a multipolar world system with rising economic and geopolitical tensions. Um, all of those risks, a shock, that means a shock anywhere in the world can disrupt a supplier and then that ripples throughout the whole system. And COVID, of course, is the latest example uh, of that, but it's only accelerated trends that were already underway as companies have realized these random disruptions aren't happening every 100 years or even every 10 years. These are actually unforeseeable, but quite frequent events if you look over the last 10 years. So to get back to your question, um, force majeure risk. These are 
so-called acts of God. It could be a typhoon, a hurricane, a pandemic. Um, these are events that typically are not foreseen. There are events scientists warn us about, like a solar storm uh, that would take out part of the Earth's electrical grid or a super volcano exploding somewhere or the big one earthquake in California. Um, the second category of risk it was what we call macro-political. So this could be a financial crisis and recession. It could be trade tensions. It could be military conflict, either, either localized or global. But those are in the arena of economics and politics. Then we've got a third category of shocks uh, in which a malicious actor actually causes damage. So traditionally for companies, uh, this meant counterfeit goods uh, or theft of either physical property or intellectual property. But in today's digital world, cybersecurity and cyber attacks are the biggest risk in this category. And then finally, we talk about what we call idiosyncratic risks, which just means it's unique to the company at hand. It could be that a critical supplier goes bankrupt, um, or there could be an industrial accident in one of your manufacturing operations. So idiosyncratic simply means it is a random risk, but specific to that company. So a couple of follow-ups. Um, I'm curious about the force majeure risk, which um, I think of as sort of a, what we might call tail risk or a black swan event, things like that. And I'd love to know when you're talking to clients, uh, do they tend to think, yes, I acknowledge that that risk exists, but it's so unlikely that I can, it's not really something I can plan for. Um, I just have to kind of hope it doesn't happen. And I'm also wondering with the pandemic, do you think that mindset might be shifting and companies are going to be in the future looking at force majeure risk in a different way? I think the pandemic has accelerated a shift in mindset. Um, I don't call these black swan events, uh, in part because as part of the research, we did a survey of 35 really senior chief procurement officers and supply chain managers and said, how often do you have some sort of supply chain disruption that takes down production in your company? And we were shocked by the results. Um, it differs by industry, but on average, companies will experience a one to two week disruption in production every two years. And they'll experience a one to two month disruption in production, which is incredibly long, every 3.7 years. So this is why I don't call these black swans. The fact is we now live in a world that's quite volatile. Um, but your point is taken that there has traditionally been a mindset, why should I spend money now to prevent a future loss that I don't know if it will happen? Um, but what we're finding is that it's not a trade-off always between um, building efficiency and resilience, that there are many actions companies can take to be both more efficient and more resilient. Um, and that is, COVID has really accelerated that. And this is why I think that the topic today is being discussed by CEOs, by boards, in the press, 
resilience is the new key here. Absolutely. So let's turn to another of the risk categories that you uh, mentioned a moment ago, macro-political risk. We might think of this as, um, in some senses, geopolitical risk. So uh, a couple of things I wanted to draw out from your report. Uh, The first is, it seems more and more that not only here in the United States, but elsewhere, countries are identifying industries that are perceived to be of strategic importance, not to businesses, but to the countries overall, whether that's in semiconductors, pharmaceuticals, communications, et cetera. How much is that weighing on the minds of CEOs these days? And and do you think we're going to see a significant shift in how value chains are constructed as a result of that concern? It is on the mind of lots of CEOs today, particularly in some industries like pharmaceuticals and makers of PPE, given the pandemic, um, as well as you point out some high tech goods um, like semiconductors, like rare earth minerals. So it's definitely on everyone's mind. Um, And I think that the companies that are acting on it have already looked at some of the benefits of regionalizing supply chains and are now moving even faster in that direction, thinking if we're going to see regulatory changes that require us to produce in different markets around the world, let's get ahead of that trend and start figuring out how we're going to do that profitably and efficiently. Gotcha. So that's your point you made earlier about the pandemic really accelerating trends that were already beginning to take place even before the pandemic broke out. Yeah, that's right. Susan, another point to touch on again from your report, um, I was struck that you suggest that 80% of all trade takes place in countries that the World Bank assigns decreasing stability scores to. So I wasn't quite sure what to make of that. I guess let's start with what is a World Bank stability score and then how is that important to this conversation? Well, it's the World Bank's political stability score. Um, And let me point out that some very large, well-known countries would fall into the declining political stability score with the rise of nationalism um, and extremism um, in the U.S., in Europe. So the fact is, you know, we don't have to look far away into the poorest corners of the world to find um, less certainty about the political and economic situation and how that might change in ways that will um, impact businesses. Yeah, I can easily imagine all that you're referring to in that comment. Um, Let me turn to one other topic as we kind of wrap up this part of the conversation about what the risk profile looks like. I was really interested in the report when you discuss the idea of contagion. And 
When I hear that word contagion, at least prior to the pandemic, I think of that principally in the context of the global financial crisis, where you know a decade ago we talked so much about financial contagion. But in your report, you talk about financial contagion and IT contagion, and, and indeed even human contagion in terms of uh, germ transmission. Um, how important is that that ability for uh, risk to to spread rapidly across the world, and and if that's our reality, how do companies navigate around that? Well, it is the world we live in. Uh, the flows of information, of people, of money, of goods—all of this uh, is hugely beneficial. But it it takes a shock that happens somewhere else and suddenly creates impact that you weren't expecting to have. So during COVID nineteen. There were lots of companies um, around the world who had no idea they were exposed to any products made in Wuhan, China. Uh, but in fact, they found out that one of their supplier suppliers or supplier supplier suppliers uh, were importing goods from Wuhan. And suddenly they were going to have that shut down for a few months at the beginning of the year and they were going to have to find a workaround and figure out what to do. Um, so that's what we mean by contagion. Um, now, how do we deal with it? Well, this is the world we live in. So I think the first element for dealing with contagion is, first of all, to see shocks coming. And this is where you need visibility. Who are your suppliers? Who are your supplier suppliers? You need to identify where deep into the tiers of your suppliers um, are goods coming from so that then you can spot if there's going to be um, you know, a major typhoon in Asia, you'll understand what that could impact to you downstream. Susan, somehow that surprises me that companies don't have the visibility that you're suggesting that they need. I mean, call me naive, but I would have thought that a relatively sophisticated global company would have pretty advanced data analytics and visualization tools that would help them to have a pretty good understanding about the breadth and the depth of, of those global supply chains. But you're suggesting maybe that that's not typically the case or not always the case. Why is that? That is not typically the case. There are some companies that have invested heavily in this. Um, and I can give you examples how that has paid off very well during the pandemic. But for most companies, you'd be shocked. So as consumers, we order something online and we get an email when the order was received and then when it leaves the warehouse and then we can follow it being tracked to our doorstep uh, and then we finally get it. Um, companies have, have nothing like this, many companies. Um, they're still using analog methods of, of, you know, paper faxes to suppliers. And when goods, you have no idea how goods are moving through the system in a real-time way. So a lot of the gains in what we call digital platforms, like e-commerce platforms, that we're so used to as consumers, don't really exist in the business-to-business -business context or haven't. Um, this is going to be a big change coming out of covid um, before you can talk about managing risk or billion, building resilience, you need to understand where goods are coming from in your network, where they come together, so you can identify 
first of all, potential shocks, and you can identify bottlenecks in that network. One supplier that actually becomes critical to four other suppliers. Um, and you need to identify those nodes. And then you can start to make smart decisions about, do you want to live with that risk? And how do you want to uh, potentially minimize that risk? That's really interesting, especially when you contrast it with the uh, consumer interface technologies that exist. So it's clearly not that the technologies don't exist. The fact that businesses have underinvested in creating transparency in the B2B world, what do you attribute that to? Do you think that was perhaps an underappreciation of the risk to begin with? Was it a reluctance to spend the money and allocating capital to different priorities. You know, when you, for example, you know, when companies objected perhaps to McKinsey suggesting that they employ these sorts of uh, tools, what sorts of objections were you hearing? Well, I think that um, I don't really blame anyone. I think that supply chains were built up under the assumption that the sky would always be blue and ships would always run on time. And we'd be in a world of tariffs going down, not up. And, um, you know, no major global military tensions. Um, And right, we used to call it the great moderation. I mean, things looked really great for several decades. but we, we don't live in that world anymore. So maybe it was um, too much optimism, but the whole concept of risk, I mean, yes, it's been around forever, but it wasn't until after the 2008 and nine financial crisis that banks and financial institutions really built out their risk management functions and departments and started to stress test their balance sheets and portfolios of assets for adverse conditions. Now, To be fair, they were really forced to do so by regulators. But nonetheless, it took that crisis to install a mindset of risk. So I think part of this is just a reflection that the whole concept of risk management in business settings um, isn't very well developed and has been focused mainly on financial risk, not operational risk. Um, And I think that's why we've ended up with um, supply chains that are built for just-in-time delivery, but not just-in-case something goes wrong. That's interesting. Susan, I've heard a lot of commentators, several CEOs, suggest that the current moment that we're in is is a speed bump and a very significant speed bump that um, is causing us all to slow down, but that it isn't fundamentally changing much. I'm hearing you say something different. The word that's coming to mind as I listen to you is inflection point, that you're suggesting that the world we live in in 2020 is different than the world we lived in in 2000 or 2010, and that it requires different approaches. Is is that fair? I think that is fair. I think we're at an inflection point. I don't think that globalization is over. But I do think that it's going to take different forms over the next decade or two than it did over the last two decades, because the world has changed. Consumers have changed. Governments have changed. You know, all of the external environment in which businesses operate is just very different than it was 10 or 20 years ago. 
So given that, what do companies actually do? You, you've already spoken a little bit about risk management. You've spoken about the need for greater transparency. So you've got that visibility around how your global supply chains are architected. What sorts of other recommendations do you have for companies? And, and indeed, are there companies out there that are already taking steps that, that help us see those pathways forward? There are. And we point to a number of examples in the report of companies that have done have, that have undertaken actions that really help them. So Nike is an example, a company that spent a lot of money digitizing its supply chain and understanding who its manufacturers were and being able to track goods as they flowed through the system. So when COVID hit in January, Nike was able to very quickly divert. They knew that stores would be shut and they were going to have to sell online. So they were able to divert shipments of apparel and footwear to e-commerce distribution sites in China very quickly. They were able to revamp or relaunch a consumer app. So they went direct to consumers, forget about the retailers altogether, and then shift marketing to market the products they had in the distribution centers rather than the products they had expected to be arriving newly produced. And all of this meant that their first quarter results in China showed a 5% loss of revenue um, and some of their major competitors saw 45% reduction in revenue. So that ability to very quickly and nimbly respond uh, was built off uh, digitization. I think that for other companies, it's not, you know, there's digitization and stress testing your supply chain. And then it's being thoughtful about, first of all, which risks are you willing to take? Um, as you mentioned earlier, Peter, there are some black swan events that companies may say, I realize that's a risk, but I'm going to take it. But it's important that companies understand the risks they're taking. There are other times we're finding when we work with companies on getting visibility into their supply chain, they find out that they have these critical bottlenecks uh, that they didn't even know they had. They'll find a tier two supplier that's important to three of their tier one suppliers, or they'll find out that they're actually sole sourcing a critical component um, so then in that case, companies are thinking about, okay, if I have one company supplier with one factory in one country, that's a huge risk. You know, does that supplier have operations in different countries? Can we start to split that? Uh, would it be even better to have a different supplier altogether in a different geography? And so this is where you get down to the nitty gritty of thinking about, how do you de-bottleneck and address the most critical um, nodes in your supply chain that are flashing red? Um, and, and it's an incremental uh, labor-intensive process. Well, sounds like, among other things, a great career path for a young person who is both interested in business and also interested in data and data analysis. Putting those two things together to help companies address these challenges I would have thought would make a pretty interesting uh, day at work. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and it's fun when you get into the logistics networks and optimizing logistics. And I think that supply chain operations uh, are going to become highly digitized, just like a marketing department. And now you're seeing it in human resources, where suddenly these departments are hiring huge numbers of big data analysts, people that can do machine learning on the data. A lot of interesting new challenges there. 
Hey, Susan, one other thing that you alluded to, and I'd, I'd, I'd love you to just say another word or two about it, is we often read you know, in, in the more popular press that the pandemic is going to cause massive changes in the configuration of global supply chains. And, you know, some people will even kind of write, this is the end of manufacturing in China or these similarly kind of very broad statements. You suggest that's not the case. I, I definitely picked up from your report a sense that re- structuring global supply chains is is difficult, that there are certain rigidities that make that less easy to do than the layman might think. Tell us a little bit more about that. I think you read the report the way I interpreted it. Um, we did a rough analysis of what could feasibly move. Um, and what we found is that overall, our estimate was somewhere between 15 and 25 percent of global trade each year could go to different countries based on either the business case. There's a business case, as we talked about, for moving to different countries, or there are the non-economic factors and regulatory changes and policy changes that might prompt a move. But you have to remember that supply networks are incredibly complex. You've got thousands of suppliers. In many cases, some industries have become so concentrated in particular geographies that the supply base just doesn't exist elsewhere. So it's no secret that the world's laptops and iPhones are produced in Asia. Um, and to develop a different geography, it's happening, but it's slowly. So some of the Asian contract manufacturers are looking at other locations around the world. Um, certainly, none of this means that foreign companies will not be in China. They will be in China because they're selling to the Chinese market. And already something in the range of three quarters of what foreign companies produce in China are sold in China. Um, and so it will always be an important market. I think that the share of production that could shift that people are talking about is the exports from China. Um, and there, it will be a slow process because you need to identify new suppliers, maybe develop them. So different countries around the world, whether it's India or Mexico or Eastern Europe, it takes time, just like it took two decades in China to develop that supplier base. Uh, it's going to take time for other countries um, that want to participate to similarly develop uh, that expertise in those supplier networks. Absolutely. So final question for you, as we think about companies pursuing greater resiliency in their global supply chains, should I be thinking that that also implies a fundamental change in cost structure? In other words, is there a new normal here of less profitability or is there a different way to think about this from an uh, income statement perspective? I don't think we're talking about a world of higher prices and lower profitability for a couple of reasons. One is, as we talked about, you free up cash flow. When you can speed up your supply chain by moving it closer to the end consumer market, you release a lot of cash that was being tied up in inventory. I think secondly, as companies are thinking about different geographies for supply chains, it's typically not shutting down one supplier and building something new elsewhere. It's really, where does your next investment come? And as our new facilities are being built, 
they're typically with the most cutting edge technology. And by doing that, you find that even high wage economies like the U.S. could be competitive if you are using the state of the art artificial intelligence, robotics, Internet of Things, right? What is sometimes called Industry 4.0 technology. Um, and that creates huge efficiencies and productivity. So I don't think that we are across the board in a world of lower margins or higher prices for goods sold. Um, I think that this will take time, but there are lots of opportunities and reasons to believe that we'll find different forms of efficiency. So plenty of challenges, but, but the road is still full of opportunities uh, going forward in your view. Absolutely. So, Susan, I mean, this has been a really interesting conversation, and I would love to do it again sometime soon. I'm curious, what are you and your colleagues at MGI working on these days? Well, um, Peter, you can probably appreciate there's nothing like a good global crisis to create demand for those of us who try to understand the economy and the outlook. So, we're doing uh, there's a lot of research that's already been underway, things like the bio-revolution, the next big phase of technology advancements. But then we're re-looking at the world of work uh, and of innovation in the post-pandemic landscape. And what might that new world uh, that we're going to emerge into look like based on changes in business demand and consumer demand? And I think that this pandemic itself will be an inflection point. And we don't expect that the world will necessarily just go back to the old ways of doing things when um, when we emerge. Well, I certainly look forward to reading your uh, next research when it comes out. But meanwhile, I want to thank you for a really great conversation today. You've, you've helped to shed light on a critical reality of our global economy that too few of us probably knew anything about before the pandemic hit. Um, you and your colleagues at McKinsey Global Institute do really great work, and I appreciate you taking the time to share your insights with us today. My pleasure, and thank you for having me. Thanks, Susan. Global Commerce Exchange is produced at the University of Virginia's McIntyre School of Commerce by Rick Carew, with support from McIntyre student Priti Nandi. The views and opinions expressed on the podcast are those of the guests and hosts and do not reflect the official policy or position of either the school or the university. Sign up for future shows at globalcommerce.substack.com and subscribe to Global Commerce Exchange wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks to our listeners and to those who submitted such great questions. We look forward to being with you again soon. And as always, go Hoos!